0: Salutations in the name of our Lord. I hope you're having a wonderful, fabuloso day. I have thoroughly enjoyed this sojourn into First John, especially on the heels of his Gospel. Today we're going to finish it up, Chapter Five of First John. It's uh, it's funny. I've I've been a Christian since nineteen Easter, nineteen seventy five. That was when I got baptized. I was actually saved a week before that, um, and I finally understood something that's puzzled me for a lot of years. Uh, so I just, um, and we'll we'll get to that. It has to do with prayer, and I finally got things figured out, puzzled out on that. God is good. Uh, we waited forty some odd years. To explain it to me, it seems like, and the answer isn't that hard. It just involves you reading the whole verse and not just part of it. So, having said that, let's just catch you up to where we're at right now. We, we've gone through the Gospel of John. We've seen, basically, uh, John's um, portrayal of the life of Jesus. The vignettes he chose had his end game so that he might know that he's the son of God and believing, have life in his name. And my big takeaways from the Gospel of John were primarily how to behave. How did Jesus behave? If we're going to do like Jesus does, you know, well, that whole what would Jesus do thing, I saw how he reacted and behaved when faced with arrogance and pride and self-centeredness. And I also saw how he reacted to people who had a self-awareness of their need. I saw him act with compassion and mercy on those that the religious community kicked to the curb. So I'm, I took those lessons to heart. Then when we moved into First John, I think I'm... Becoming convinced, uh, one of my big takeaways so far with first John is, uh, well, if I were to compare him to Paul, probably one of the greatest theological minds of all time, I would say Paul tells us how to think. John tells us how to live. That makes sense to me. John is all about Love. He was known as the apostle of love. So it's a matter of love God and love your neighbor. Our whole life of obedience will fall into one of those two arenas. In fact, let me just go over here. I've got the Ten Commandments listed here. You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the Ten Commandments. And I have a a line drawn between, splitting this into two parts. Above the line are those commandments that deal with God. And below the line are the commandments that deal with people around us, other humanoids, such as you and I. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what Jesus said when asked and pushed on what was the greatest commandment. He says, that's easy. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like unto the first, love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two hang all the laws, and that's true. We see that here. But also the one thing I wanted to that that you know, I just I think I need some more coffee. The one thing that I am being impressed with by John is his focus on practical Christian life. If you're a Christian, you're going to love God and you're going to love your neighbor. And both of these have at the very root relationship. You can't love somebody because love is an action. Love just isn't that ooey gooey uh, feeling you have in your heart and that weak Thing in the way your stomach just kind of flip-flops when somebody you, you, you're crushing on walks by. If you are loving someone, you are serving them. You are putting their needs ahead of your own. That's the very definition of love. When you love somebody, you put their needs ahead of your own. When Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13, that's what he's talking about. You put the other person's needs in front of your own. I've been married to my wife for over 45 years. I love her. And every day, I do things I know that will bring her joy or contentment, that serve to meet a need. I put her needs in front of my own. I deem her life really more important than my own. Loving God is no different You can't love God unless you have a relationship with him. And you can't have a relationship with him unless you are born again. That's John's thing. Love God, love your neighbor. And if you really have a relationship with God, you won't have any other God before him. If I really have a relationship with my wife, I'm not going to have any other woman before her. If you really have a relationship with God, You won't take his name in vain. You remember a Sabbath. Because these are all things that God loves. These are things that please him. And when you love somebody, you want to do what pleases them. That's the whole concept of love in a a nutshell. Love God, love your neighbor. What does God take pleasure in? I want to do that. All right? So that's kind of where we're at. Now, chapter five. Let's begin. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving and carrying out his commands. In other words, we can say we love God. We can say we love his children. But how do you show that? How do you Show proof of that by actually loving them. Love is an action. It's a verb. It's not a noun. All right. In fact, this love for God, this is love for God in verse three, to keep keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Hint, love God, love your neighbor. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. When he's talking about the world, he's talking about the world system. And hello, Henry, I see you there. God bless you. Uh, He's talking about the world system. Who overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Why? Because the world doesn't believe that. That is not the source of their energy, of their life. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And again, you know, remember, John is writing to give them uh, separation from this Gnostic thing that's going on in the world around them. And there are some very clear defining characteristics of those who follow God, as opposed to those who are falling after this Gnostic, self-centered uh, pagan philosophy. Um, the Christian who loves God obeys his commands, walks in obedience. He loves God, he loves his neighbor. Eventually, those who do not have Jesus do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God eventually. They will show their cards, as you will. They will uh, eventually show who they really are. In fact, John said earlier in this epistle that there was a group of people who walked away from them, who left them. He said, look, they left us. That's showing you they never were part of us. They were not part of the family of God. They hung out with you for a while, but they didn't stay. The fact they didn't stay says, They're not part of the family. John's being very practical here. Um, They left us. They were never part of us. Why? Because they did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that is one of the big things about the Gnostic heresy from its infancy on is that they find a way to remove Jesus from being the Son of God, from being God. All right? So... Who is the one that overcomes the world? We do. We who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not exactly sure what John is saying here. It could be the Holy Spirit. Uh, it could be that water and the blood could be the water, of his baptism by John and the blood, the blood he shed on the cross for us. Um, water and blood could be a description of the birth, physical birth process. He was physically born, but then he was also born in the spirit. So, but I, I don't know. Uh, I've got this little thing in my upper right hand part of my uh, brain, a box that says, I believe. And I put everything in that box that I don't understand. And then I push the I believe button. And basically that I believe button is the, I believe God knows what he's talking about button and I don't. And I trust that, Someday this will make sense. Right now, this doesn't make sense to me. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God, which he's given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That's the core doctrinal teaching that we cling to as children of God. And the Gnostic heresy in the world in general does not believe this. And they don't have the son of God, so they don't have this eternal life. John is giving his The churches, some very plain, easy to understand for the most part, except for that verse six and seven and eight. But if you're a Christian, this is how a Christian acts. John tells us how to think. I mean, Paul tells us how to think in his epistles. John's telling us how to act. Paul says, sound doctrine looks like this. John is saying, The Christian looks like this. That's what he's talking about here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. There have been a lot of people who have twisted this around saying, I can ask God anything I want. I want to win the lottery. I want a fast car. I want a big house. I want to be famous. Look closely. I've underlined this verse. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, how do we know his will? Hmm. You ask all the right questions. Here's how we know his will. It's based on our relationship with him. Again, I'm going to refer to my relationship with my wife. I have a relationship with my wife. I've been married to her for over 45 years. Before that, we were together a couple years. So basically 47 years we've been together. And in those 47 years, I've come to know her intimately well. I have come to know what pleases her. I've come to know what she likes. And what what she doesn't like. Um, And I, when I speak with her and when I talk with her, knowing what she likes and approves of gives me direction when I want to bless her. Well, if I'm buying her a gift, or if I'm, for instance, she dearly loves about once or twice a month for us to. To go out to dinner, and put our phones away, and spend a couple hours at a nice restaurant, just talking. That pleases her, and so I do that. Well, as we walk with God, as we are believers and are in relationship with God, and we're, and by the way, how do we, how do we, uh, grow in that relationship? Well, we read our mail from Him. That's the Bible. We talk to him, that's prayer, and we hang out with his family, that's called fellowship. As we grow in our knowledge of him, we have a greater sense of what he loves, what's pleasing to him. And we move our lives in that direction. And our conversation with him centers around that direction. When I became a believer, my prayers a lot of time were me-centric. I asked him for things. I asked him for this or for that. Um, But it's funny, this last chapter of my life, my prayers haven't been so much about me, but it's, God, what do you want? And when God shows me what he wants, I pray about that. Um, There's areas of sin in my life. I'm not going to go into detail but there's things about me that I just really really do not like and I'm praying with God I've been praying with God about conquering those areas in my life and it's working it's happening I'm seeing those areas of rebellion in my heart being taken away and uh, and it's amazing to me my prayer life, is centered now more upon praise and worship and thankfulness. And when God makes his will plain to me, I pray in that direction now. My prayers are not, they don't begin with me anymore. My prayers, if this makes sense, my prayers begin with God. I know what God likes. I know what God wants. I'm in relationship with him. And I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. I'm going to read his word. I'm going to fellowship, hang out with his family. I'm going to talk to him. And in the process of doing those things, he tells me what he likes, what he wants. Just like my wife and I. Every day I'm with her. I learn something that she likes or wants. And I move in that direction. So... Then he goes on here. If you see any brother or sister and commit a sin that does not lead to death, pray and God will give them life. Now he's talking about something you're witnessing, not something you heard through the gossip chain. You see your brother and sister doing something that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. That verse used to scare me. But in the context of this letter, he's talking about those people that left the church, who weren't part of them. He's saying, look, those people who stay, pray for them. Those people who left, I wouldn't spend time on that. They are not part of God's family. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, this is important. This is how we know what a believer is. The one who is born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who's true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Again, very practical instruction. Anyone who's born of God does not continue in sin. Now, we sin because we're sinners. We're in bodies that betray us. Um, but a true believer does not continue in sin. Does that make sense? And dear children, keep yourself from minors. Now, I always used to think that was an odd little statement to make. But, remember, John, a Jewish man, in the beginning, this was a Jewish thing, a Jewish movement, a Jewish religious movement. But by this time in history, in John's life, the church was more primarily Gentile. And this was a commandment to remind them to don't, do not return to those idols that you used to have. There's a pantheon of, uh, uh, of Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. Keep yourself from idols. He wouldn't have had to say that to Jewish believers, but primarily these are Gentile believers. Alright, well that is it, little and Jelly Spoons. I'm Mr. G out of here Thanks for showing up Henry